You may be seated. Church, let's pray together that God would do what we've just sung. Father, we praise you for being a God who has given us his words, words that never pass away, words that are fixed, firm, words upon which we may stand, that we can trust, for there is no falsehood in you, God, and you never change, and therefore there never will be, there never was, there is not now. And so we ask that you would set our hearts afire. God, might it be you who we hear speak now through your word. Father, we ask that you remove from our minds the many things that distract us. Father, would you guard error from my lips, I pray, that what we hear would lead to a deeper, richer appreciation for us of your gospel, by which you have given us life. God, you are an amazing God, and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to the book of Judges and find chapter 3, Judges chapter 3. And this morning, we continue with our study of this awesome, awesome book. And I describe it as such because I believe the term awesome is an apt description of the many stories that are detailed here, the characters described and the salvation declared. God's salvation is awesome as we were talking about with our children or very great in the least. And as we've noted, this is the central theme that runs throughout the book to proclaim God's great salvation. And to this point, we've seen our author recount Israel's celebrated entrance to the promised land and their initial success as they subdued its inhabitants. Sadly, while the Canaanites Hittites, Hivites, Jebusites couldn't match Israel's military might because the Lord had given them into his people's hands. They did manage to seduce their captors. Rather than annihilating their enemies, Israel allowed them to remain, intending to profit from their labor in defiance of the very thing God had warned them about. Israel chose to live beside their enemies with the result being the slow but steady spread of apostasy. Israel turned their backs on Yahweh. And as we saw together, if you were with us last week, a generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. So God, in his anger, which we observed last week is a reflection of his jealous love, God, in his anger, gave them over to raiders. He allowed them to be defeated, to suffer. But when they cried out to him, he displayed his amazing patience and raised up judges who saved them. And this is what we said is the mystery of Scripture, how a holy God would suffer sinful people and choose to save them by his grace. Israel did nothing to deserve God's provision. Even after he gave it, they didn't deserve it. They didn't listen, but they continued to prostitute themselves to other gods. And this is what makes God's salvation so great. This is the incredibility of God's great salvation, that a holy God could love a sinful world so much that he would send his only son, that whoever repents and believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. This is the gospel, church, and it glorifies God 
because He's the one who saves. And this makes His salvation so very great. So today we continue with our study where I believe we're going to see these same truths again as we meet God's first deliverer, Othniel. Othniel. So let's read together Judges 3, beginning with verse 7. Our author writes, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Aram, Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. May God bless the public reading of his word. Church, about a year or so back, I was coming home from work, and I was met at the door by my children, all excitedly jabbering at once. Now, I'm accustomed to being warm, warmly welcomed, but the, the heat of even this reception made me start to sweat because clearly something had happened during the course of the day that they were all determined to be the first to tell me about. And initially, I wasn't sure what to make of the noise because mixed in with the enthusiasm for whatever it was that they were trying to tell me was this increasing measure of irritation with one another for interrupting and, and sharing things that they had apparently each desired to be the first to announce. And as I tried to distinguish details from the rising tide of emotions, Melinda appeared at the door with a smile on her face. And that smile, it immediately put me at ease. It immediately let me know that whatever it was my children were battling to brief me on, it was a good, it was a good thing. And this passion, as expressed, was, was exuberance for whatever it was, not anger. And so when I finally settled them down and allowed them to take turns explaining their excitement, I discovered they'd been studying butterflies in school. And, and in particular the butterfly's life cycle, and that today, the day that I arrived home, their caterpillar, I can't remember his name, but they've been observing this guy. He'd previously formed a cocoon. He'd hatched on this day. An amazing four-step process found in nature in which an egg becomes a, a larvae or caterpillar becomes a cocoon or chrysalis becomes a butterfly. And this cycle that marks the life of every butterfly, and, and while it's timing, between stages may differ along with a number of other variables. The four steps of this process feature in every butterfly's life. And church, I believe that the text we just read, like a butterfly's life cycle, provides a paradigm for salvation. A paradigm. Four steps for salvation. And this is a paradigm that our author is keen to set before us as it will feature like a butterfly's cycle with differing lengths, details, and expression throughout the rest of the book, but always in the same order and with the same outcome. And so, let me go ahead and just give you the order, and then we'll come back later and look at each in detail. So, four stages. The first is Israel's sin and Yahweh's anger or wrath. Israel's sin and Yahweh's anger or wrath. The second stage is Israel's cry and Yahweh's Savior or Deliverer. Israel's cry, Yahweh's Savior or Deliverer. The third stage is Israel's oppression and Yahweh's power. 
Israel's oppression, Yahweh's power. And then the final stage is Israel's opportunity and Yahweh's gift. Israel's opportunity and Yahweh's gift. And church, I believe that these four stages mark Israel's life cycle as it is recorded here in the book of Judges. And our author presents them to us here in verses 7 through 11, following his summary of all that we can anticipate, the summary given, if you will, in chapter 2, verse 11 through 23, which, if you were with us, we studied last week. And so he gives it to us here so that we might see the model of, as one commentator notes, this model of how it went in the Judges period. Our author's desire is that we, the readers today, see the process that marked Israel's time in Canaan. Why? Because it displays the danger of spiritual assimilation and the greatness of our God's salvation. So, that said, let's look at first stage in more detail. Israel's sin and Yahweh's anger. And, and this stage is recounted, I believe, in verses 7 and 8, where in regards to Israel's sin, our author writes these words, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And this evil is marked by two practices given us. They forgot the Lord, and they served the Baals and Asherahs. Now, it's interesting to note that this is the only occurrence of the verb to forget in the book of Judges, front to back, only occurrence. And while it might suggest to some of us this morning a passive process, forgetting, the verb is more closely connected to the act, an active verb of forsaking. In other words, the Israelites, they didn't simply forget. They chose to forget. They intentionally put the Lord from their minds, and they fixated on other things. And Emmanuel, I think that this point bears emphasis this morning because I've had numerous conversations with young believers, and by young, I don't mean only physically young believers, but young believers who are deeply concerned that they might forget the Lord. They might forget and forget Him and all that He's done for them over the course of their life. I've even heard some of these individuals express their fear that they might, conf- they might commit the unforgivable sin. They might blaspheme against the Holy Spirit and in so doing lose their salvation. Have you ever heard anyone express those concerns before? It might have been that you've struggled with that concern. Besides the fact that such concern evidences a misunderstanding of what blaspheming the Holy Spirit is, I believe that they actually, these concerns actually authenticate faith. Now, a faith which may be weak and granted under certain attack, but a faith in the Lord nonetheless, because remember, the scriptures declare that no one can say Jesus is Lord unless by the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3. And if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, Paul tells us in Romans 10, 9 and 10, we will be saved. There's no maybe here. Further, he who began this good work, Paul tells us in Philippians 1, 6, he who began this good work will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And so, church, our salvation is guaranteed, and not by our adherence to the law, but by Christ's fulfillment of it for us. And therefore, we simply can't forget the Lord. Israel didn't just forget. They chose to forget. They wanted to forget, and then they worked to make it so, as evidenced by our author's further mention there of Israel's worship of the Baals and Asherahs. You notice the plurality of these two idolatrous cults? Baals, there's an Asherah, there's an S there. Not just Baal and Asherah, it's plural. 
And scholars believe this point reveals the widespread nature of Israel's idolatry. So rather than worshiping in a single location, a single deity or two, Baal and Asherah worship took on the character almost of independent gods, all tied to their unique worship practices in the different Israelite towns and regions. And friends, in this vein, let me just note how prone we remain to such plurality as a nation that's marked richly by diversity of culture, of of language and history, but we now share a common heritage as Americans. The worship of God in our country is marked by this same diversity, isn't it? And this isn't a bad thing, per se. However, it is when the God being worshipped ceases to be the God revealed by Scripture, and when the worship practices employed cease to reflect those directed by the Scriptures, and when the principles undergirding such worship no longer align with the Scriptures. In short, God's Word, church, must be our ultimate source of authority for all matters of faith and practice. And this is why we gather to study God's Word, to hear it preached, to sing its truths, to prayer, to pray its truths. Tragically, Israel abandoned God. And we're told that his anger burned against Israel. So he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishataim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. And there are several things that I find interesting about that sequence of our text. And the first is, is the humor which our author inserts here. And it's in the name of Aram's king. Cushan Rishataim's name most, most likely means Cushan double wickedness, while Naharaim means double rivers. And so, in essence, Kushan is a Kushan double bad, if you will. From Edom, double rivers. It's kind of a moniker that I believe our author intended to use to poke jest at his enemies, just to demonstrate that even though they were subordinated to Kushan, Yahweh still sat high and lifted up over this enemy of Israel, of God's people. So it's a sense of humor that's intended. But then there's a second point of significance here, and that is in how Yahweh's anger, in his anger, we see signs of his salvation. If you remember from last week, we noted that Yahweh's wrath or his jealousy is the flip side to his love's exclusivity. And here in our text, we have in Yahweh's anger, Israel's hope. For as one theologian notes, the Lord's anger shows that he will not allow Israel to serve Baal unmolested. Yahweh's wrath is the heat of his jealous love by which he refuses to let his people go. He refuses to allow his people to remain comfortable in sin. And church, it's, it's this very same principle that we hear proclaimed by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, where there we're reminded not to make light of the Lord's discipline or to lose heart when he rebukes us. Why? Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a child. And as a child myself, I remember the discipline of my father and I don't know that I can recall, thankfully to this day, how frequent it was, but I'm told it was daily, almost like an apple a day. The, the discipline I received was promised to help heal me. Now I can assure you that that punishment was not well received with a happy heart when I was a child, but now how thankful I am that I had a mother and father who loved me enough to teach me right from wrong, who cared enough to take the time to help me see, to learn life's hard lessons, and rather than just going along, to get along, as so often is the case today. As a parent, 
I can appreciate the thankless task that such tough love often is in the moment because I didn't receive it well. I didn't even fully understand it. But, oh, how grateful I am today because that's true love, isn't it? That's true love, not the sloppy, dreamy-eyed nonsense that we're sold in a soap opera today, but the sincere, selfless compassion that gives no matter how it's received. Israel sinned, and Yahweh was angry. Have you sinned? Are you living in sin? And if so, are you experiencing God's wrath? Because if you are, praise God, for His anger is a demonstration of His love. Because He loves and disciplines everyone who are His children. Everyone. And if you're not disciplined, and writer of Hebrews says everyone undergoes discipline, then you're illegitimate children. And you're not true sons and daughters of God. So what can we do if that's our experience? Well, let's look to the second stage then in our salvation paradigm, which is Israel's cry in Yahweh's Savior. Israel's cry in Yahweh's Savior. Verse 9, we read, But when they cried out to the Lord, He raised up for them a deliverer. Now, I believe that there's something really significant that's going on in this verse and that we might so easily miss if we're not cautious. And it's tied to the act of Israel's crying out. They're crying out. And at a glance, we might be tempted to read Israel cried out and assume this is an expression of repentance, which would in turn make the Lord's response a requisite act of kindness. However, the verb our NIV there renders as cried out is one that scholars don't believe connotes repentance. And a study of this word and its some 60 uses in Scripture reveals it to be a term of seeking others' aid, frequently Yahweh's, but not specifically in regards to repentance. And in fact, in the instances that this verb is connected to repentance, there are other words that are used to describe that, to convey this additional sense or second verbs that help to attach this verb with the sense of repentance. And so to cry out doesn't imply Israel's repentance. And church, here's why this is so significant. I believe that this reveals that the Lord's raising up a deliverer for his people was not a reaction, not a reaction to any action taken on Israel's part. In other words, this was grace. And church, this grace is consistent with what our author has already described in chapter 2, where verse 11 through 15, he pictures Israel's idolatry and the Lord's judgment as he writes, whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. And then he continues verse 16 of chapter 2, the Lord raised up judges who saved them. No mention of, deliver, of, of repentance there. None. Only God's deliverance. That's grace. And church, this grace flows throughout the scriptures. We've noted it twice here in Judges. And the Apostle Paul describes it so beautifully in Ephesians 2. And that's a passage I know we've referenced frequently. But there he notes how at one time we were all dead in our transgressions and sins. In which we used to live. And in which we followed the ways of the world. In the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We all used to live among them, those who were dead to God in their sins, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts, enslaved like the rest of the world. We were by nature justly 
objects of God's wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our sin, it's by grace we're saved. So friends, God doesn't save us because we do anything to merit it. He saves us by grace through faith when we repent and believe in Jesus, our deliverer. So God graciously raised up a deliverer for Israel, and he has graciously provided us with a deliverer, his son, Jesus Christ. Do you know him? You can right now, for God has determined to save through the heard word of his gospel. Do you believe it this morning? Church, would you confess your sin if you don't and believe in Jesus? I pray that if there are any here today who haven't, that they would. So we've seen Israel's sin and Yahweh's anger. We've discussed Israel's cry, Yahweh's deliverer. Now let's look more closely at Israel's oppressor and Yahweh's power. Verse 10 there informs us that the spirit of the Lord came upon him and the him there is Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Kushan Rishathaim, double bad, into the hands of Othniel who overpowered him. And the primary emphasis in that verse, verse 10, is on Yahweh's power. Israel's oppressor, clearly, Kushan, whom we've already discussed. And, and, and we're not going to retrace those steps, but we're told that he was placed in by the Lord into Othniel's hands. But I still believe, and this is maybe somewhat of a side, but I still believe that this man's name demonstrates Scripture's humor. How our Scripture's writers included humor. Even, even in instances of subjugation, you have people finding a way to even the playing field, if you will, by poking fun at their oppressor's expense. But, but here, in regards to God's power, Yahweh's power, I believe that that phrase, the Spirit of the Lord, came upon him. I believe that phrase is crucial for understanding the role of the deliverer. But before we speak to that, notice how little personal information, personal detail is given us about Othniel. Almost nothing. What we can ascertain is that he was of noble, if alien, ancestry. Alien, and I'll explain. As the son of Kenaz, who... We're informed in chapter 1, if you were to look back to verse 16, Kenaz was related to Moses' father-in-law. So Othniel wasn't a pure-blooded or a pure-bred Israelite. Because you likely recall how Moses married Zipporah, and Zipporah's father was Jethro, the priest of Midian. Right. And Jethro's descendants then were the Kenites, who according to Numbers chapter 10 treated the Israelites kindly when they were wandering in the wilderness. And so Othniel comes from foreign stock, but the man marries well when he distinguished himself in battle. His defeat of Kiriath-Zephyr, which we're told or discussed in chapter 1, results in his marriage to Caleb, son of Japune's daughter, Aksa. And Caleb, Caleb was a hero. He was the man. I know the Israelites who left Egypt in the Exodus... Only he and Joshua were permitted to enter the promised land. Therefore, as Caleb's son-in-law, Othniel stands out as a true Judean hero. The first, and interestingly enough, the last Judean hero in the entire book. Now, as surprising as it might seem to us in our 21st century sensibilities, none of this, neither, neither Othniel's pedigree nor his military prowess, qualified him to take on Cain or Cushan as Israel's deliverer. Othniel's only qualification given us here in our text 
came in the fact that he was raised up by Yahweh and empowered by Yahweh. Two points. Enhanced by Scripture's silence regarding any other details of the man's life. So this is Othniel. But what are we to understand by that phrase, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him? And I believe with others that in the book of Judges, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon individuals, it signals the arresting presence and power of God, often of individuals who are unqualified for or indisposed to service for Him. I don't believe that this expression describes the typical operation of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament as contrast to His mode of operations in the New Testament. And there are, there are many today who view the New Testament as teaching that the Holy Spirit in the New Testament dwells in the believer, whereas in the Old Testament the Spirit simply came upon believers. But when we read the Scriptures in this way, church, I believe we fail to consider the continuity that's displayed between the Spirit's operations in the Old Testament and the New Testament, along with misinterpreting the purpose of this phrase here in our text. One, one theologian explains it this way. He said, this expression represents a spiritual variation of the more physical version that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And we've heard this one before. And this is simply a, a metaphor, functioning metaphor for the urgent, compulsive, the often overwhelming force with which God operates in an individual or in a group's experience. And so in the present instance here, here in Judges 3, the empowering presence of the Spirit of God transforms this minor, half-Israelite, if you will, officer from Deborah into the ruler of God's people and the conqueror of this world-class enemy, Kushan. And church, don't forget, it's this same Spirit, this same Spirit of God who Paul informs us in Romans 8, verse 11, raised Jesus from the dead and who now lives in us, we who are God's children, giving life to our mortal bodies through His Spirit, the same Spirit who lives in us. And so the beautiful truth that I believe we see here in our text is how God works for the salvation of His people in the power of His Spirit, all for His glory. Othniel is nothing more than an instrument by which God saves. And we aren't given enough information, and I believe intentionally so, to attribute any significance to the instrument. Rather, our author leads us to revel in the one who wielded the instrument, who is God. And, and right here, church, let me just make a quick comment on the peculiar contrast of verse 9 where we read that the Lord gave Kushan Rishathahim into the hands of Othniel. And then verse 8, which states how the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so he sold them, Israel, into the hands of Kushan. Do you notice how Kushan goes from God's instrument of judgment to the judged in a single verse? A single verse. And this is a change that we see over and over in the Scriptures. Jeremiah 27 provides an, an excellent summary of this kind of pattern, as does Isaiah 10 and Habakkuk chapter 2. And in all of these texts, as with this one under consideration today, what I believe we see is the glorious truth that God, Yahweh, is sovereign over all. It doesn't matter the size of a nation's army, the power of its men, the wisdom of its leader. Yahweh, little Israel's God, is the Lord of history. And history's time is in His hands. He will use whatever ends He deems right to bring glory to His name. And church, God is most glorified when we find our deepest joy in Him. This is why He came. 
He came an unassuming Savior, a deliverer who just didn't fit a king who wasn't welcome to recognize. Jesus came to earth like us in every way and yet without sin. His single qualification was his total obedience to his Father's will. Christ did nothing but what his Father willed, and thus he fulfilled God's law. And then he took our sin upon himself, our sin, and he died in our place so that we might be forgiven. And now whoever repents of their sin and believes in Jesus will be saved. Do you know that joy in forgiveness, that confidence in eternity? Are you still fighting to try to earn your way to heaven? Our author makes clear that Israel sinned and Yahweh was justly angry. And so Israel cried out and Yahweh raised up graciously a savior. Israel was oppressed, but God worked in power. These are the first three stages given in our paradigm. So now let's consider the fourth. Israel's opportunity and Yahweh's gift. In, in verse 11, we read these words. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So the, the rest that's described here, no doubt, regards war, as referenced by Joshua 11 and verse 23. And thus, Israel experienced rest from attack, rest from oppression, rest from affliction. And, and guys, this is God's desire for his people, his gift. This is what he wants to give them. This is, this is what he can provide and they may experience if they're faithful. For If you remember God's covenant to Israel, at the very beginning of the book of Judges, Joshua has just led Israel to renew the covenant in which God promised to be their God, to provide them with the land and, and provide them with peace, with provisions, and with his presence. If Israel were faithful, then the rest described for us here in verse 11 was to be their experience forever. So the land's rest is God's gift, but it comes as Israel's opportunity. They're responsible to fulfill their portion of the covenant. And church, isn't this the kindness of God leading his people to repentance? One theologian asks, does not our God seek to awaken us as much by his goodness as by his severity? And so don't we see in this 40-year period of rest, God's grace lavished upon his people? They didn't deserve this respite. They'd broken his covenant. They didn't deserve. God, Israel had rejected the Lord. They were participating in the perverted practices of their pagan neighbors. They cared more for fitting in than for faithfulness, more for personal pleasure than the practice of godliness. And yet, God still gave them rest. And friends, I believe that we who live in this country, we Americans share a similar rest to that of Israel. We definitely don't deserve the many blessings that we enjoy peace, shelter, food, clothing, all of which we experience in abundance. Friends, we are a people living in a land at rest. This is a gift of God, and it's one that can only be fully enjoyed through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because we could have all the world could offer, and <laughs> there are many, as we can see on TV, in our nation who do, and yet... Their hearts, their lives lack the very thing that marks the land. Rest. Rest. Do you know that rest? Do you have the peace the scriptures describe as transcending, understanding your life circumstances? 
like the, like the life cycle of a butterfly, the story of Othniel here reveals a paradigm of salvation that marks the lives of all people. The question is, where do you fit? Are you a sinner facing God's just wrath? Because if you are, cry out to him. Because he's provided a deliverer who is Christ the Lord. And have you experienced sin's oppression? Are you experiencing sin's oppression? Then you can know the Spirit's power, for he has graciously given us the gift of salvation to be received by faith through repentance and belief. Church, the greatness of our God's salvation is rooted in the fact that all he has done, he has done by his grace for his glory and our good. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, you are an amazing God that you could love broken people, that you could love me, a broken, sinful person, is a testimony to your great love, your awesome salvation that you have determined to gift, to gift to us as we hear the gospel. Father, for we are all broken and we all fit within this paradigm. Father, thank you for your grace which drives your salvation. And Father, if there are those here today that are struggling, Father, and we all are at some level and with different things, but those who may be really struggling, Father God, we ask for your grace in their lives. Lord, as Aracelia reminded us at the very beginning in her testimony, following you does not mean life will be without troubles and trials. Lord Jesus, you promised us the opposite. In fact, if we follow you, then our lives will be marked by struggle as we fight and strive to live out our faith in a broken world. But God, you give us peace and rest, the rest that we see described in the land. Father, may we who live in this land marked by such blessings appreciate them and acknowledge them graciously to be from you. Father, and may we take the opportunity that such rest affords to share our hope in Jesus with those who may have more or less, but who do not have hearts marked by the rest you promise and provide so graciously. Father, if there are those this morning who do not know this rest, it's there. You extend it. Father, might they respond by faith in repentance and belief for your glory. And we pray these things in your son's name, Jesus.